I'd like to uh, thank all of you for praying for us this past week. It was last Sunday afternoon that uh, we thought we had lost Charlotte and uh, she had to be taken by ambulance to the hospital and so we spent from three o'clock till what was it midnight Sammy almost midnight in the uh, emergency room and uh, she's doing fine now and we're thankful for that still have some tests that they need to run and uh, so keep praying for her and of course praying for Jenny and all of us and then Wednesday night um, I was telling you that the numbers that I'm supposed to have in my heart that are supposed to be under a hundred well, they're down from about 4,000 down to 690 some. So they're going the right direction. Still not good, but going the right direction. But uh, I had an echocardiogram, and uh, they want your ejection fraction to be above 50%. Might have been down around 30. Um, I'm above 50% now, and so my heart has recovered. Now we just got to get all the rest of my body in sync. And one of the doctors said, my brain still doesn't believe the signals that it's getting from my heart. And medicines have to be adjusted. And so Wednesday night, uh, I apparently just, my blood sugar just tanked. And uh, so anyway, I see the doctor tomorrow and have labs done. And hopefully it'll mean a little bit less medicine. So anyway, it's been quite a week. And I know some of you have been, that, been through some things too. And uh, we don't go through life without going through some stuff. Have you noticed that? Everybody has to go through some stuff. It doesn't really matter whether you had your quiet time or not. You're still going to go through it. doesn't matter whether you were giving to the church or not. You're still going to go through it. Because that's the promise of Jesus. In this world, you will have tribulation. Not might. Will have tribulation. And the other thing, too, is we don't always understand what a sovereign God is doing. The steps of the righteous are ordered of God. And some people battle sickness all of their life. Some people battle relationship problems in their family all of their life. Some people battle governments all their life. Aren't you glad you're not living in Ukraine or Iran or someplace like that? And uh, there's just problems in this world. You say, well, what are they all going to be over? Oh, there is coming a day, folks, when you'll never have to worry about any of this stuff again. And uh, what a glorious day that will be. I think we sang that last week. And so let's uh, bow our heads and close our eyes. I want to give you a moment. You know somebody. You're probably sitting by somebody who has just been through it, maybe even this past week. And they need you to lift them up. I know uh, Ron Coley had stents put in last week. Patty Seitz was in the ER. Uh, Jenny had to go back to the ER because of a uh, high heart rate. And I mean, it's just stuff like that. There's always going to be business for the medical field, right? And uh, people go through that kind of stuff. And you know what we can do? We can pray to the great physician. There are also people who are struggling with drugs and alcohol, people who struggle with pornography, people who struggle with anger and hatred, all kinds of things. Pray for them. And I'll lead us in a word of prayer in just a moment. Lift them up before the Lord.
Father, as we studied about the demon-possessed man today, and we looked at all of the things we saw in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that characterize demonic manifestations, I don't think there can be any doubt that's the society that we live in. Not exactly the same, but in principle. You told us that we are in a war. And Martin Luther said in his hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. Oh, Father, would you help us to understand that when we have all of the questions in life, the things we don't understand, the great big whys, let us go back to that song and understand whatever is happening in our life, it is so that your truth can triumph through us. And so, Lord, we need to submit. Oh, Father, use, we just sang, my ransom life in any way you choose. And Lord, forgive us when we sing that, but we don't really mean it. And the first time you do it, we question you and we question your goodness and we forget to rest in you. And so, Lord, just like we saw this morning and in previous mornings in Sunday school, you were Lord over death, you were Lord over nature, you were Lord over disease, and you're also Lord over demons. And we thank you, Father, that you watch over us, you protect us. We thank you that you deliver us. And we thank you, Father, that you have already triumphed. We're not waiting for victory. We have victory because our victory is in our triumphant Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we claim that victory in our life, wherever it may be needed, whatever storm we might be going through. Speak the word and calm the troubled seas of our heart and of our life, that your name might be glorified, and that people around us might marvel at who you are and what you do. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for being here with us today. Now open up our eyes, our minds, and our hearts, that we might, as the psalmist said, behold wondrous things in your law. And we pray all of this for the glory of Jesus Christ, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's take our Bibles this morning and let's move on to Exodus 35. And um, we're going to see that the Lord gets repetitious here. And uh, you might wonder why he's being so repetitious. And uh, I think, I sure hope so anyway, by the time we finish with this, you'll see that it was a gracious very gracious repetition. So we're going to be looking at this. <clears throat> and um, it seems like that when we start on this with this Sabbath regulation, scratching my head going, haven't we heard this before? And maybe the people were even thinking, yeah, 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 we've already heard this. We know all of this before. And uh, we've seen it before. Now, I want to ask you a question. Does it seem weird? We're coming to the end of the book. The end of a book. This is a dramatic book, isn't it? I mean, we started off and uh, Moses is born. And you remember that uh, 
Moses' mother had to hide him because Pharaoh was so afraid of the, um, the Israelis multiplying that he wanted all the male babies two years, of under, uh, two years and under killed, thrown into the Nile. And remember that Jochebed made a little boat, a little ark, a little basket, a waterproof basket for Moses, put him in there and hid him among the bulrushes, and lo and behold, Pharaoh's daughter comes. Now, uh, if I had been watching that baby, I would be thinking, oh, this is the worst possible situation. Pharaoh's daughter, the man who wants all of these babies killed, but yet, by the grace of God, she didn't kill him. She adopted him. Remember that? And as we go through the story, Moses is raised. He becomes a man. And he chooses to identify with the Israelis, the Hebrews, instead of the Egyptians. They are his people. And he murders an Egyptian that was mistreating a Hebrew. And uh, word gets out about it. And he has to run for his life. So he goes from the palace of Pharaoh to the backside of the desert. And that's where he sees a bush that's on fire and yet it's not burning. Remember that? <coughs> he goes up to the bush to investigate. And he has an encounter with the Lord, the great I Am. And God tells him, go and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And you remember the encounter then when Moses goes with Aaron and he says, let my people go. And Pharaoh asks the question, which is kind of the, I think, the theme of the book of Exodus. Who is this God that I should obey him? Paraphrase, of course. That's kind of God says, okay, you want to know here, you're going to find out. Ten plagues later, they are begging the Israelis to leave, begging them to leave. Well, they get uh, out a few days journey away and they're by the, camped by the Red Sea. Everything is hunky-dory. Then they look off in the distance and what do they see? The armies of Egypt are coming after them. What are they going to do? And that's when panic first hits them. Before this, it's all been great. Now they're panicked. What happens? Moses stretches forth his rod at the command of God and they cross on Dry land. It's pretty dramatic. They get to the other side. The Egyptians tried the same thing. They're drowned in the sea. And that's the end of their encounter with Egypt in this book. Free from the past. Free from Egypt. Free from slavery. And they move on. God takes care of them. God blesses them. And you think about all of the miracles and all of the high drama and the excitement that is found in this book. So how is it going to end? You know, uh, when I was doing music, I used to tell my choirs when we do a Christmas musical, I said, uh, we're going to work on all of it and do our best on all of it. But here's the thing you have to know. you got to get the first song right or you never get the audience attention. And you got to end it right because that's the last thing they're going to remember. So work on the first and work on the ending and the middle will kind of take care of itself. Well, God wrote a book here. And the book starts off kind of in dramatic fashion. What's going to happen? And you know how it ends? They build a tent. After all of that, the book ends with them building a tent. Huh. Oh. Wonder. Kind of anticlimactic, isn't it? What in the world is the Lord thinking in all of this? 
Why would Moses write this this way under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Now keep in mind, we're not the original audience. These ex-slaves from Egypt are. And there are some other things that have gone on here. You remember the golden calf? Remember any of that that's happened? Well, this is picking up right after all of that. And God has a purpose in all of this, and he's going to do something great, and it's going to be a very gracious, wonderful thing that um, he is going to give here. Now, we're going to uh, read through this, and I want you to think about some things. Exodus 35, we'll just look at eight verses this morning. And I want you to see some things and uh, consider what is happening here. I want you to consider how the regulation about the Sabbath, that's not just about worship. It actually shuts down their economy for that particular day. Yeah, that can be tough on somebody, giving up a day's work, a day without any income, a day without doing anything. That can be, be kind of rough in this particular society especially. But also think about this. If God wants the tabernacle built, he's also telling them, don't build it. Don't do any construction on the Sabbath. That's going to slow down the construction of uh, the tabernacle. I want you to also notice, as we read through this scripture, that it's not just Moses. It's not just the priest. It's not just a certain craftsman. But this is something that everybody in the congregation is to be involved in. It's not just sit back and watch other people do it. But everybody is supposed to be involved in all of this. I think you will, will see that. I want you to also notice how serious is God about obedience. What does he say in this that would get their attention and cause them, motivate them to be obedient to everything the Lord says? I mean, there's kind of a natural sense that we might go, oh, well, you know, I'll let somebody else do that. But God put something in here that kind of will get everybody's attention. And then notice what God has to say about willingness. Does God care? Is it okay just to do the stuff he commands but not really be willing and not have a right heart? Well, you judge for yourself as we read through this scripture. Exodus 35 verses 1 through 8. Okay, verse 1. Then Moses gathered all the congregation of the children of Israel together and said to them, These are the words which the Lord has commanded you to do. How many of them? All of them. Verse 2. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh day shall be a, a holy day. That's actually where we get our word holiday, H-O-L-I, holy a holy day, a holy day for you, a Sabbath of rest to the Lord. Now, whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You think God is serious? Verse 3, you shall kindle no fire throughout your dwellings on the Sabbath day. It's a good thing they live in a warm climate, isn't it? Then we get down to verse 4. And it's kind of a continuation, but it's a different subject. And Moses spoke to all the congregation. There it is again, circle that word. All the congregation of the children of Israel saying, 
This is the thing which the Lord commanded, saying, Take from, from among you an offering to the Lord. That's the command. Look what he says the condition is. Whoever is of a willing heart, a willing heart, let him bring it as an offering to the Lord. What is it supposed to be? Well, he tells them. He's not asking for much, just gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen, goat's hair. Don't suppose you have any of that laying around, do you? Verse 7, ram skins dyed red, badger skins, and acacia wood, oil for the light, and spices for the anointing oil, and for the sweet incense. Onyx stones, and stones to be set in the ephod, and in the breastplate. Okay, and we'll stop there. So he's not asking for much, is he? And yet, at the same time, there's a principle that we're going to see in all of this. So, let's, let's talk about this, and we'll try to answer that question and try to end up as to why would the Lord uh, take this book and out of all of the miracles, out of all of the dramatic stuff that happens, why he sort of ends with, uh, okay, now build the tent. And then the book just kind of seems to end with all of that. We'll see if we can do that. Okay, number one. God's people are to be worshipers by His command. Worship is not an option. I know we think we live in a free society. We can do what we want. It's Sunday morning. We, can, we could go to brunch. We could go play golf. We could go see family. Or we could go worship. And they're all kind of equal things. Well, that's not the way God sees it. This is not equal with everything else and every other option that you have out there. This is something that is very important to the Lord. And it is a command of God. And when Jesus was at the uh, well in Samaria with the woman at the well, he said the Father is seeking worshipers, those who would worship him in spirit and in truth. This is something that is a priority to God. may not mean much to you, but it is a priority to God. And for God to try to win our hearts over to become worshipers, to get us to the place to where we love it, we crave it, and we enjoy worshiping the Lord, and quit making it about ourselves, and quit making it something that, that we want, and something that is focused on us, that's what is happening here, and that is what is, is taking place here. And that is a hard task because we are stubborn, stubborn, rebellious people. We like things to be about us. Mention my name. Make it about me. Meet my needs. Take care of me. Make me feel good. Make me happy. You know, all of that type of thing. And yet you'll find when you look in the Bible, worship is supposed to be directed toward the Lord. He is the one that is supposed to be pleased. God's people are to be a worshiping people. Now, we talked in the past about what the New Testament says about the Sabbath, that that's really in Christ, and we rest in Him. But nonetheless, the principle is still true. We are to be, as all of God's people are, a worshiping people. And notice that the, the way that I worded that first point, by command, not by suggestion, not by implication. He doesn't hint at it. Guys, have you ever had your wife hint at something and you didn't get the hint? Men are not very good at taking hints, ladies. You've got to tell them what you want. Don't just hint. 
Don't just hint. And don't just tell them something that somebody else did because they'll go, well, that's nice. I'm glad they got it when you were really wanting him to do that for you. You're going to have to tell him. He's, he's dense. Okay? He's dense. Now, God doesn't hint because we would never get it. If he said, you know, it'd be nice, you know, uh, you know, Baal has people that show up every week and, and, and worship him, we would, right over our heads, we'd never get it. So he tells us, and it, he tells us by giving us a command. Moses gathers all the people, and all of them are together because all of them were to be worshipers, and he said, this is what the Lord has commanded you to do. Not some, but all. Not just most but all. And the command is given very clearly. These are the words which the Lord has commanded. You're not going to have to guess. You're not going to have to interpret. You're not going to have to solve a riddle. It's very, very clear what God is wanting them to do. You know, it uh, dawns on me that a lot of times, I, I don't think this is just a Baptist problem, but I think it is a Baptist problem. We get people in the church and we try to put them to work before they really become worshipers. And I think the pattern is you get people to become true worshipers of God, you won't have any trouble getting them to work. And the reason people burn out in the work is because they're not being refreshed in their worship of God. We've got to get this right. In fact, God is saying, I'm willing for you to set aside your work even on my tabernacle in order that you might actually worship and that your soul might be fed and nourished and that you might set everything in order and understand what life is really all about. A creator God who loves you and has redeemed you and walks with you and to whom you belong. So be careful that you don't just turn into a worker without really being a worshiper. Number two, God is picking up where he left off. You know, uh, I remember one time when I was a kid, we were playing miniature golf. Putt-putt, they called it. And uh, I hit the ball way too hard, and it went out. And uh, I picked up the ball, and I put it back in where I wanted it to be, where I would, you know, be able to get it in the hole. And somebody said, nope, you can't do that. You've got to put the ball in where it went out. I've got to go all the way back there. Yep, got to go back there and put the ball right in there. And it seems to me that as God begins to talk about this stuff about the Sabbath that there's a particular reason why he would be repeating this. This is why it's gracious. Because he takes it and goes immediately into, no work shall be done for six days, but the seventh day shall be a holy day for you, a Sabbath of rest to the Lord. And whoever does any work on it shall be put to death, and you shall kindle no fire throughout all your dwellings on the Sabbath days. So why did he do that? Well... God gave his word about the Sabbath, and he did it in a repetitive way so we would get their attention so that they could remember it. But I think there's even more than that. Because if you were to turn back to Exodus 31, four chapters back, God has been talking about the Sabbath rest. Exodus 31, okay? Do you know what happens at the beginning of Exodus 32? They build a golden calf. And they bow down and worship it. I mean, no sooner has God said in Exodus 31, Worship me, worship me only, worship me like this on the Sabbath. 
And it doesn't take any time that Moses goes back on the mountain and they go, uh, you know, who is that guy that brought us here? This uh, uh, Moses, yeah. We don't know what's become of him. So Aaron, make us gods that we can follow. I mean, it didn't take long at all. When God says this about the Sabbath here in Exodus 35, it's almost like he is saying, now back to what I was saying before I was so rudely interrupted. We're going to go back to that. John Calvin, when he was in Geneva, he was preaching through Matthew. The church there got tired of him and they ran him off. So he went to Strasbourg, Germany and had a good ministry there. But everything in Geneva started falling apart. They wrote him back and said, please, you've got to come back here. You've got to come back and help us. So he left Strasbourg, went back to Geneva. And his first Sunday in the pulpit, they had those big pulpits up on the stairs and way up high there. And you know what he did? After those, I think it was three years, he comes back in to the congregation of the church at Geneva and he picks up in Matthew where he had left off before. Just a continuation. This is kind of what God is doing here. Now back to what I was talking about before. You rudely interrupted me with your stupid golden calf worship. And make sure you get it this time. This is the grace of God. Why is it the grace of God? Because he could have just destroyed them. He could have just said, I'll raise up another people. I don't need this. This isn't what you were supposed to do. You're not listening. Why should I give you any other word? And I think that's a good question for you. A good question for me. Why should God bother to speak to us anymore? We haven't done what, he, what he's already asked us to do. We've already violated it. We've already ignored it. We're not really paying all that much attention to what we read in his word to really act on it. That's why the Bible says, be a doer of the word, not merely a hearer of the word. Well, we're expert hearers. At least we can appear to be hearers. But we don't really get to the point of doing. And this is what God is saying to them. He's going back where he left off. Okay, let's get back to this thing about worship and how it is supposed to be done. And don't do any stupid golden calf type things again. Got it? And the people of God are saying, yes, sir. For now, for now, it wouldn't always be this way. But for now, they got his attention and uh, they are ready to get this. And kind of ready to hear what God has to say before he was so rudely interrupted by the uh, golden calf. So there's grace and there is redemption for God to even allow them to build a tabernacle. For him to say, I will be among you. They didn't deserve any, any of that. In fact, they, des they deserved far worse. And here God is, the God of a second chance renewing the covenant and allowing the worship center, the portable worship center, the tabernacle, the tent, to be built. And he says, I will dwell and I will live among you and I will allow you to worship me, sinners worshiping a holy, righteous God. And if we could see worship like that, it really would transform us. Number three, I want you to notice that worship and giving... 
or state of the heart. Nowadays, we like worship to be state of the art. Fog machines, lights, tremendous video displays, all kinds of things like that. Have you ever thought about the fact that if the economy goes like some people think it's going to go, a church that is built on that won't be able to buy the equipment and won't be able to afford the electricity for what they do. However, here i got some good news for you. What are we going to do? We can worship under a tree and do what we do, right? This is something that God says, I want you to have it focused on the right things and in the right way. It's not so much about being state of the art. What God is concerned about is the state of the heart. Did you really sing this morning? Oh, yeah, pastor, I really sang this morning. I wonder what your heart was doing while you were singing. Was your heart wandering, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love? That's so easy to do, so easy to be distracted. Why is it easy to be distracted from the God who created and controls the universe? Why is it so easy to let our minds and our hearts wander from the one who has the greatest love for us that anyone has ever had because he laid down his own life for us? What is wrong with us? What in the world is wrong with us? Someone said to me last week, they said, boy, you sure stepped over uh, all over my toes. And I said, well, my father-in-law would have said, then I missed. I was aiming for your heart. Isn't that right? God wants to change your heart. If your heart changes, your actions will change. But your actions can change without your heart changing. Now, you notice when we get to this part about giving to uh, build this tabernacle, you notice here this, this command that he gives, take an offering, that's the command. And then he says, and let those of a willing heart be the ones that give. Why would he care about the heart? Because that's where he looks, that's what he sees. He doesn't see your facial expression near as much as he sees your heart's expression. He looks upon the heart. If there's sin in the heart, he sees it. If there's indifference and apathy in the heart, he sees it. If there's hatred in the heart, he sees it. If there's love in the heart, he sees it. All of that is about the heart. Whoever is of a willing heart, let him bring it as an offering. And notice he says twice in here, it's to the Lord. You're not giving it to the church. You're not giving it to Moses. You're not giving it to the pastor. You're not giving it. You're giving it to the Lord. Now, the good thing about that is when you give it to the Lord, then if somebody that you blessed with a love offering misuses it, it's really none of your business. It's God's business because you gave it to him. All you have to do is be obedient and have that willing heart and give it to the Lord. It's not really so much about the tabernacle. It's about the Lord. No amount is given here. No amount is specified. Just a willing heart. Kind of a reminder of 2 Corinthians chapter 9, 6 and 7. Paul says the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one most, must give as, here it is, as he has decided 
in his heart. Okay, it's a heart matter. Not reluctantly, nor under compulsion, for the Lord loves a cheerful giver. Isn't that what he's saying through Moses? 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. I would never would put poverty and generosity together, would you? Generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So there they were, begging to be a part of this, even though they didn't have anything themselves. Why did they do it? Because they gave themselves to the Lord first, and God changed their heart and made them generous. That's what God is doing. He's teaching us to be like Him. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, 1 and 2. Now concerning the collection for the saints... As I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do on the first day of the week. Each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. In other words, have this taken care of. If you really want to be a part of this and this is in your heart, then you will go the extra mile to make sure it's done by the time I get there. So it's not state of the art that matters. It's state of the heart. Where is your heart as you worship God? Do you have a willing heart in your singing, in your giving, in your uh, being in the choir or being in the orchestra or working in Awana or being a nursery worker? Where is your heart? The heart is what really matters. And then number four, just in case you're worried a little bit about this, Let's just understand this. God will not require from you what he does not give to you. God asked for some expensive stuff. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen, goat's hair, ram skins, dyed red, badger skins, and acacia wood, oil for the light, and spices for the anointing oil, and for the sweet incense, onyx stones, and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. Well, you're glad you don't want much. Right? I mean, that's something, isn't it? Where are they going to get this kind of stuff? Well, don't forget that when they left... In the Passover, in Exodus chapter 12, down in verse 35, the people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plummeted the Egyptians. So where'd they get all of this? God made sure they had it before they left. 
You see, God is never going to ask you to give a million dollars if all you've got is 50 cents. God is not going to ask you to give something that he has not first given you. Now, there are two things about that. First of all, you can rest in the facts that God is not trying to bankrupt you. And secondly, if God ever does ask for that, trust him. He's going to give it to you first, which leads thirdly to the point of understanding that we don't give God 10% and now we're off the hook because everything that we have belongs to God, not just the 10%. He gave us everything that we have, the clothes on your back, the house that you live in, the car that you drive, the food that you eat, everything is given to you by God. Oh, I work for all of this. God gave you the physical ability to be able to get that job. And you could have just as easily been born in a place where they didn't have an economy like ours, so you wouldn't have a job. And you'd be scrounging to uh, feed your family. So we've got to understand God owns it all, and he asks us to give offerings to him out of the resources that he has given to us. So you can't lose like the children of Israel here. They weren't giving, they were gaining. And they were being blessed by all of this because they were giving back to the Lord what the Lord had so graciously given them. So let's think about this. Okay, God's people are to be worshipers by command. So God is saying there's a priority on worship here that you all are missing. And we do the same thing today. Secondly, he is picking up where he left off. He's saying, you may have blown it, you may have gone astray. Now get back and put the ball back in bounds where you went out. No, don't put it over there. No, don't deal with that. Let's get back and deal with where you went out of bounds. You made a golden calf, you've got a worship issue. And so we're going to talk about worship once again. Thirdly, He is telling them through all of this, I don't want your rituals. I don't need your money. I am aiming for your heart. I want you to be a heart people toward me. I want your heart to be right toward me. I want your heart to be loving toward me. I want your heart to be obedient to me. And he says the same thing today, doesn't he? We're to love the Lord our God with all our heart. And then fourthly, Just because we get a little bit nervous, he reminds us through all of this that the only way the Israelis got this was they took it from the Egyptians by what? God granted them favor. And so they had all of this to give. And so God has us give to him what he has poured into our life and we give it back as an act of worship. The offering is just as much a part of the worship service as the singing of hymns or praying is. Don't ever forget that. But why would he end the book this way? Why would he stop with all of this, this dramatic book? Why would he end it with the construction of a tent? Let me read to you and I'll close what uh, Pastor Ligon Duncan said. He said, because the people of God had said, Lord, Lord, Don't destroy us, and please, Lord, don't leave us. Dwell with us. Be close to us. Draw near to us. Give us your presence. And so God says, okay, I'll build a tabernacle. And then he turns around to them and says, 
Now I've spared you. I've forgiven you. I've shown you my grace. I promise to dwell in your midst. Now you show me that you really meant it when you said you wanted that. Give to the building of my tabernacle. God is really important. And that's what they had risked losing in the story of the golden calf. And the fact that the tabernacle is being built at all says that God in his grace and mercy had determined, despite their own sin, to be present with them, to draw near to them, and to be favorable to them, and to fellowship with them, and not to consume them, but to commune with them. You see what he's saying there? I could have, and I would have had every right to wipe you off of the face of the earth. Why are we climaxing the book with the building of a tent? Because the most important thing of all is worship. And it is an honor and a privilege that God would even receive your or my worship. And God is saying that's where we're going to end. All of the drama, drama of coming out of slavery was so that you could come to the tent of meeting and meet with God. All of that with the Red Sea was so that you could build a tent and come to that tent of meeting and meet with God. All of that that has happened before is to get you to this place. And God even allowed their sin and forgave their sin to teach them in dramatic fashion. You have blown it. I have been faithful. You have strayed. I stay the course. And now I'm going to allow you to worship me and to have a tangible expression of my presence in the tabernacle. And back then, those people would have read this and they would have said, Wow. Wow. That's the most amazing thing of all. This God accepts and wants our worship. Worship from sinners like us. No wonder, folks, he sent his own son to die on the cross for sinners like you, sinners like me. No wonder Jesus lived that perfect life because he was dwelling among us, tabernacling among us, so that he could go to the cross and be the sacrifice for our sins. Why? Because God the Father wants to dwell in us, make us his own, forgive our sins, so that we can be a community of worshipers. Something that the world cannot do. You are honored and blessed and privileged to be a worshiper of the Most High God. And that only happens when you repent of your sins and put your trust in Christ alone as the full payment for your sin, believing that He rose from the dead and confessing Him as Lord. And He says to you, you are now made worthy to come into my presence and to worship me in the beauty 
of holiness, and I will never leave you or forsake you, not because of what you do or have done, but because of what I have done for you. Now worship me in spirit and in truth. What a privilege. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have made it clear that you want your children to worship you. We are your children. What should we be doing? Worshiping. Not just on Sunday morning, in every part of our life, because you're worthy, as we sang about earlier. Thank you, Lord, for that privilege. And thank you that you took the children of Israel as an illustration to us. After they had blown it so badly, then you restored the covenant, and then you picked up where you left off. Lord, there's some of us today that there's some things we need to get right with you, things we need to surrender to you. And we try to do all of the things in the church and in the world except that one thing you've called us to do, that place where we've sinned and blown it. We need to go back to that and pick up where we left off. And Lord, I pray you would take us to that point that we could be right with you, confess and forsake our sin, and get back where we need to be. Holy Spirit, you know where that is. We're open for you to deal with us. Draw the lost to faith in Christ and draw the saved to where their worship is once again unhindered. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, thanking you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.